right, John chapter 9 in our scriptures this morning. John chapter 9. We're going to seek to cover 30 verses today. Remember the Andy Griffith show years ago? I remember an episode where Andy and Barney were sitting in church together and Barney was nodding off to sleep and Andy would nudge him to wake him up and Barney reminded Andy in that particular moment he said there's a fine line between a long sermon and a hostage situation (laughs) so 30 verses we'll cover in a timely uh, situation and thank you for uh, your worship and ministering to one another and songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Um, Just looking around for somebody here. I don't see them. I was going to recognize them this morning, but uh, uh, we'll move on. Not able to be here yet. The the Rosses been here with their twins yet? That's who I was looking for. Not yet. I just see all the pictures. I just can't wait to meet these two kids. And uh, so thank the Lord for Danielle and Joe Ross and the birth of their two twins. Would you pray for us also this weekend? There's a chunk of us going down for the Young Adult National Fellowship in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, um, Thursday through next weekend. So would you pray for safety? Um, Some kids, young people from all over the country will be meeting together there in Raleigh and and, uh, including some of our own young people. We're looking forward to that time of fellowship and encouragement and praise the lord we've got some baptisms coming up in july and august that are planned so if you would love to follow the lord in obedience and baptism please uh, let one of the pastors know and send us your testimony and we'll be excited about looking forward to those two opportunities and and uh, i want to thank pastor kent for so wonderful father's day message last week and um praise god for the opportunity to consider all those things of fatherhood and manhood from the scripture last week. All right, let's pray. Lord, help us uh, today as we um, finish this chapter. We need your wisdom. Um, We need the the indwelling spirit of God to illuminate our hearts and our minds to the the truth of this text um, before us. Open our eyes that we may see these riches of truth from your word this morning. Everything that you see and hear uh, for the remainder of this service be acceptable in your sight, our strength and our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I don't know if you remember two weeks ago, we said really the theological uh, impetus of this whole text is really in John 9 and verse, verse 39. And Jesus said, for judgment, for judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and those who see or who think they see may become blind. We know the whole chapter is really about that theologically but practically the Lord uses the healing of the man born blind to teach this principle Jesus has come into the world for judgment what does that mean he's come into the world really to separate among people he's He's come into the world, really, if you think about it, to bring, and hang on with me here, we know he's come into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. He's not come into the world to condemn the world. So when we say he's come into the world, and he says himself, I'm coming to the world to judge the world, he's caused, he's come into the world to really bring a division of sorts. That's what it means. To really make it clear who believes and who doesn't. And in, in bringing that judgment, bringing that division, then one soul can determine whether they're part of the family of God or whether they're not. So simply say to you, when Jesus came to bring judgment, he came to make it very clear that there are only two kinds of people in the world, those who need Christ and those who already have him. So often when Jesus speaks in certain situations, it's to bring about the realization that there is a division among people. If you study uh, 
many of his words and sermons throughout the Gospels. And there's something quite distinguishing about the way he brings this realization of this division. Remember John's reason for writing, period. Jesus is to be understood as the Son of God and that he's to be believed upon. And in believing upon him as the Son of God, one might have life through his name. And so in our context before us, we're amazed that those who are most familiar with and in love with the law of Moses are the ones who don't spiritually see Jesus for who he is. Then there's a man who's physically blind, who is made to see. By the end of the chapter, he believes in who Jesus is, and he's born again. Two groups, one individual and one group. We mentioned two weeks ago that there's really five entities brought forth for us in this passage. We'll re-examine those entities here, but really still one person at the end of the day who believes and, and the others who don't. Jesus' action to heal this blind man is done on the Sabbath day. And this is where he begins to bring the division. Look with me at chapter 9 and verse 13. And they brought to the Pharisees this man who was formerly blind. And verse 14, now it was the Sabbath day on which Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. We'll look at this a little bit later, but just in verse 14, there's two violations of the Sabbath day, according to the Pharisees, that Jesus had done just in that verse, and uh, that's for later. So as we come to the text, we've noted verse 39 is the theological touchstone to the whole chapter, but the whole reason why there is a debate and division going on is not because this blind man was healed, because he was healed on the Sabbath day. You'll remember the story in John 5 when the lame man of 38 years from his birth was healed on the Sabbath, and, and that was kind of, kind of troublesome for the religious leaders too, wasn't it? You read the end of John chapter 5, and they're already seeking to, to take his life. I believe there's some six times Jesus allows a good work or performs a miracle on the Sabbath day in the Gospels. Matthew 12, he allows the disciples to pick grain on the Sabbath. Later, a person with a withered hand is healed. And Luke 13, another paralyzed person is healed all on the Sabbath. And Jesus allows or performs a good work. And these good works done on the Sabbath seem to be the igniter, the fuel to the fire that burn in the bosoms of the, these religious ones. Was Jesus a violator of the Sabbath? Was he deserving of death because he violated the Sabbath? And by the way, if you go back into the Old Testament, that's the consequence of violating the Sabbath, right? You're, you're put to death. This is, a, this is a sacred, holy, separated day for the Lord in the Old Testament Mosaic economy. Well, Today we're going to explore three literal live courtroom scenes. Then the final scene of this narrative will be a post-trial, if you will, interaction between Jesus and the man born blind. Kind of in the back of the courtroom, so to speak. There, even with the trial over, Jesus will ask some more questions. And in doing so, we'll have the opportunity again to see the glory of Jesus and the purpose of of God on earth. But why are these courtroom scenes here? You need to know this, that, that the Supreme Court of the Jewish system was really the Sanhedrin. You may call them the Sanhedrin, right? They had commissioned the Pharisees as the Supreme Court justices to approach this man and then his family and then this man again in three different courtroom scenes to bring them to trial, a Jewish trial. So the plaintiff here would be really the Sanhedrin via the Pharisees. The defendants would be the man born blind, and then they include his parents. But ultimately, Jesus, who was never questioned, is really uh, 
the person on trial here. I want to have you mark off. We read this long passage two weeks ago. We're going to march through it today, so we're not going to read the whole thing again in one reading. But I want you to mark off these three different courtroom scenes to kind of help you understand the flow of the text. So uh, courtroom scene number one is really verses 15 to 17. Verses 15 to 17. Scene two, verses 18 to 23. Verses 18 to 23, and this is where the man's parents are brought in to be questioned and interrogated. And scene three is verses 24 to 34. And then really, the the post-courtroom scene with Jesus and the man born blind concludes, concludes the chapter. But what do we find here in courtroom scene one? So again, in a moment, your, your mind is, is brought back and does a field trip back to chapter 5 where we saw Jesus' first miracle on a Sabbath and we remember the consequences for Jesus in that situation. Jesus uses another healing on a Sabbath here for good reason as well and I also want you to recall with me the whole purpose of our text again at the end of the chapter we've already stated twice. Jesus is seeking to bring judgment, a division, if you will, between belief and unbelief. Back in chapter 5, we reminded you that the Pharisees had added 39 stipulations to the God-given Mosaic law regarding the Sabbath. 39. That's why when we get to the questioning of the man born blind here, in verse 15, Then the Pharisees were asking him again, what's the next word? How? We'll see that again later when they interrogate him for a second time in courtroom scene three. How he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. That man in relationship is is referring to Jesus. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a what? A division. There's the beginning of understanding of the judgment Jesus brings. So they said to the blind man again, question number two, what? Not how, but what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a what? He's a prophet. He's at least being drawn of God at this point, not born again. He can see physically, not spiritually, but he's being drawn and he recognizes Jesus must be uh, from God. So how is an important question. There's actually three literal um, violations among the 39 additions, the religious ones added to Sabbath day regulations. The first violation that they're questioning this man in relationship to how is the making of the clay. For Jesus just to spit in the dirt and to mix that spittle with that dirt and create mud was a violation of one of their additions to Mosaic Sabbath obedience. Number two, to actually pick up that mud and rub it on his eyes would have been violation number two. And violation number three, of course, was what? You get up and go wash in the pool. Wash the mud off. So that's why they start with how, and they'll end with how later. When the main question should be what? Did Jesus violate? Now hang on with me here, especially those of you that have been saved for a long time. Did Jesus actually violate the word of God when it comes to understanding what God had said? adherence to the Sabbath is. And I think we all need to ask ourselves the question, what happens when the Bible doesn't teach something explicitly, but we insist that it's still biblical truth? What happens when there's an insistence upon people to follow our conviction rather than something that's explicitly biblical in its nature. 
Well, there's going to be division. We see that here, verse 16. The Pharisees concluded that Jesus didn't obey the Bible because he had, their, he had violated their own additions to the law in relationship to the Sabbath. Jesus cannot be God, they say. Then there's another question. How can a man who's a sinner do such a wonderful thing? Well, if you study Hendrickson's commentary on this passage, you'll read by way of syllogism how the Pharisees sought to play out their legal logic in the courtroom scenes. And here in scene one, syllogistically, the Pharisees would have said this, all people who are from God keep the Sabbath. Thus, this man Jesus does not keep the Sabbath, so therefore, this man Jesus cannot be from God. Remember our syllogism premise one? Basically, we are saying all people that are from God observe the Sabbath regulations that we've added, the Pharisees are saying. The, the division that occurred is to be settled by the man formerly blind. What I do know is that I've been blind from birth, he said, and now I see. That's all I know. So this man must be from God. So we realize again from the Pharisees' perspective that there's always been sincerely motivated people who gather for worship and to do the work and the will of God who actually also might be quite lost. Courtroom scene two, verses 18 to 23. The story turns to the parents because the Jews didn't believe the man's testimony. They didn't believe he had actually ever been blind. Or maybe they had to convince themselves that he was never born blind. So the Pharisees go to the parents to verify the congenital condition of blindness. And at this point, they have to convince the jury, so to speak, that the man born blind is a fraud. He has a body double, probably. Or maybe he had severely scratched corneas. Regardless, this guy is a fraud, and we've got to prove it. And there's a lot at stake for us because if we don't prove that this poor beggar is a fraud, we're kind of in trouble. So what's the parents' response? Let's look at verse number 20. The parents' response. His parents answered them and said, we know that this man is our son. Yes, that's the guy. And that he was born blind. All of his life, he couldn't see from the day his first day on earth verse 21 but now he sees and we do not know or who opened his eyes we do not know and what do they say next why don't you go ahead and ask him he's an adult he is of age and by the way I mean you guys know at this time of age would have been 13 or older for a Jewish boy so he's at least 13 why don't you go ask him And he'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were what? They were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed, and by the way, this goes back from a Supreme Court decision with the Sanhedrin. Anyone that is going to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, would be immediately removed from the synagogue. And all Mosaic religious life for this reason, verse 23, the parents said, again, he is of age, go ask him. So they know the answer, and they kind of lie here. They don't kind of lie, they lie. <laughs> they answer in part, and a partial truth is a full lie, <laughs> Right? And they, they're scared. And we know the Bible says the fear of man, Proverbs says, is what? It's a snare in so many ways for belief, for believing or unbelieving people. How many people even today fear religion they've been reared in for the man-made consequences to their insubordination to that religious man-made structure? How many of you used to fear the snare of man and the consequences 
your former religion would have brought upon you if you didn't. The conditional, if you don't, this. Or if you do, right? But even among believing people, the fear of man can be a snare. I know many pastors who are good men who fear the faces of their people and they know something biblically right must be done it must be done but they're so fearful of the reaction from their own people they just kind of back up and they bide their time and hope that the return of Jesus is sooner than later But I want to ask you this question as we continue on into courtroom scene three. Because I think it's germane to the context. How many unbiblical applications of the Bible within the church have also caused the same snare of fear? Even this church, even Bible-believing churches, Regardless here, the parents are caused to stumble because they're scared. Verses 24 to 34, courtroom scene three. Um, they didn't get what they wanted out of the parents, so they called the blind, formerly blind guy again. This man's not saved yet. It's very clear that God's drawing him. The more they push him, the more God helps him to see the light, literally spiritually. And so they demand something in verse 24 that's very, very interesting. So a second time they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, give glory to God. They gave him a command. And then they explained what they mean. In other words, this is what your answer is going to be or else. This is how you're going to give glory to God. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. So, right now, admit this man who violated our three of 39 additions to the Sabbath law, violated God and the Sabbath, called Jesus a sinner or else. And what was the or else for him? The same for his parents, right? He was going to be put out. And in a Jewish context, if you were put out of the synagogue, you basically should go find another people group to live among and adopt a different culture. You're put out of the synagogue, you've lost everything. Everything. And so they ask in verse 26 a repeated question. So they said to him, what did he do to you? Right? And there it is again, how? How did you open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become one of his disciples too? I mean, guys, listen, this just wasn't pure sarcasm. Right? Someone who's being drawn of God to see Jesus for who he is talks like this. You remember the clarity for those of you that grew up in a religious church? Remember the clarity of the moments as God was drawing you to the point of being born again? You could just see the, the dark audacity of religious demands on your life and you're saying, what? How? You've got to be kidding me. That's not sarcasm. That's the drawing power of the Spirit of God on your life and the conversion. It just doesn't make sense at all. this man has a boldness and I think it's it's a God given boldness he's not taunting these men he's just sticking to the whatsoever things are true of the courtroom scene right he's just seeking to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth so help him God that's that's all he's doing. I've already told you the facts. 
Why do you want to hear him again? And, and I've, got a, I've, got a, I've got a keen suspicion that this young man knew of Nicodemus, who was one of the Pharisees too, who came to Jesus by night, who by this time in our narrative of the Gospel of John may already be a believer from out among the Pharisees. And so this man with his boldness could be asking these men, are you asking these questions again to me to indict me or are you really serious about understanding who he is and becoming one of his disciples? I think you could very logically turn this inside out like that. Because if you, I read a part of a dissertation about just Pharisees and, the, and how they function in the Gospel of John. It's a fascinating dissertation. But not all of the religious leaders in the Gospel of John were people who sought to kill Jesus or have him arrested, although at times it seems like they all acted many as one. There was always some who didn't, but always wondering, see, this guy's saying, maybe you know about Nicodemus, and I mean, I'm willing to help you ask those, answer those questions. I've already told you I think he's a prophet. Regardless, do with that text whatever you may. And then they say in verse 28, well, you are his disciple, aren't you? And he's not yet. And then they proclaim, well, we're disciples of Moses. And you know what? They're not. Right? They're not. Yeah, they obey all the Sabbath. But they've added 39 things to it by way of conviction. This is certainly a form of emotional abuse. <laughs> it's abuse by use of isolationism. You adhere to what we feel the interpretation of the law is or will identify you with Jesus, that outcast, and not the law of Moses, and you're going to lose everything. And if error is insisted on, my friends, it will deteriorate to abuse because people in the wrong position don't have Bible answers. And if they do, it's often out of Bible context. When people are pushing conviction and pushing their thoughts or maybe their additions to what Scripture says, and they keep pushing and they keep pushing and they keep pushing and they keep pushing. They're actually fulfilling the division that God actually sent Jesus to cause, to create in the world. And that can happen even in a Bible-believing church. If someone keeps pushing about something that's a matter of conviction or extra-biblical moral intention, and they keep pushing and pushing, they're not really understanding conversion, and they're certainly not understanding what progressive sanctification is. What's marvelous here, though, is we see the Pharisees marginalizing themselves while they think they're marginalizing and abusing the man unto complete isolationism. And now we're beginning to see this man they intended to isolate actually begin to understand freedom, spiritual freedom. He's about to be made to see spiritually. So the Pharisees' mentality is something an old friend of mine used to say in describing stubborn people. He said, stubborn people always use the, like, they like the us four and no more. And if they don't get their way there, they go to the us three and not the and if they don't get their way there, they'll go to the us two and not you. Right? And they usually die very lonely people. Right? This man's understanding that. In verses 30 to 33, there's some final statements from the defendant before being led away for sentencing. And what does he say? Powerful words here. The man answered and said to them, well, here's the thing. And it's kind of amazing that you don't even know where he's from. 
Now, I will tell you, he's not referencing geography there. Okay? How many times has Jesus said already in our study of this gospel that he's from where? He's from the Father. He's of eternal divine placement. You don't even know where he's from and you proclaim his law. You don't, you don't know him. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners. And folks, he references prayer here twice. God doesn't hear sinners. He knows something of the Psalms, doesn't he? If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord does it what? He doesn't hear me. So here's this young boy, younger man. God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. And it's a pretty clear reference that Jesus probably, when he's spitting in the dirt and making the mud and placing it on his eyes, he's praying to the Father the whole time. If it would be your will, Lord, grant me. May I pick up that which I've temporarily set aside without, but only pick it up with your authority, Lord. If, if I could heal this man in this way, Lord, if it be your will. This young boy, this young man realizes God's heard Jesus' prayer. That's what makes sense to him. And, and he does see. He does see. And then he goes on and expounds even more, some tremendous theology here. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. It's not even in your history books. It's not in any newspaper articles. No one's ever been eyewitness to someone's physical eyes being open, especially if they've been darkened since birth. If this man were not from God, verse 33, he could do nothing. He could do nothing. So I'm the only one that's ever lived, so yeah, I am kind of a one of a kind, and no one can refute that fact as I answer your questions in this third courtroom scene. You can't figure out where he's from, and I'm telling you, this man... This man is from God and he, he, did, he did do a miracle. So they've already declared this guy a disciple of Jesus, which was not a good thing in their eyes. That's really verdict number one. But verdict number two and three here is they said to him, you were born entirely in sins, verse 34. Now, that should take your mind back to verse number two of chapter 9. And his disciples, Jesus' disciples had asked Jesus, remember, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Remember our first sermon on that? So these guys already have an answer to their question, but to the disciples' question. And it's not why well, it wasn't his parents. You know what? You were born blind because in your mom's womb, you sinned. Remember that additional religious tradition that was added when we went through our, our uh, harmartiology, our study of sin in our first sermon in this text? You were born blind because you sinned before you were born. That's what literally they're saying. It's indictment number two, sentence number two. Therefore, you'll forever be in your sins. There is really no, they're saying here, there's no, there's no hope for you. You understand that. Once we bring the verdict from the authority of the Sanhedrin, you're born in your sins. You're going to remain in your sins because we're about to do something with you that's irreversible. Right? Verdict number three. Sentence verdict number three. You're guilty, so we're going to put you out. We've already explained what that means. Of 
courtroom scene's over. Guilty verdict. Exhibit A, B, and C has been given. Gavel's been dropped. Story's not over. Courtroom scene is. I don't believe this man would probably leave that courtroom, whether it was held in a home or in a street or in the synagogue. I don't think he leaves this courtroom frantically weeping. What am I going to do? But he does leave. And as he's leaving, there's someone else finding him. Do you remember back to chapter 9 and verse 1? It says, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Go with me now to verse 35. Jesus heard that they had put him out and what? Finding him. Folks, just please underline those two verbs and please understand the power and, and the depth of their importance when it comes to understanding what Pastor Steve said earlier about the purpose as to why we exist as a church. And we'll get to that by way of final application here in just a moment. Jesus saw and then he finds. And then there's another spiritual thing for us, a lesson to learn here as he goes on into verse 36. He answered, excuse me, in, in verse 35, Jesus uh, commences the conversation with a question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Please see with me here. Please see with me here as we close. Who's in view? And not what's in view here for the healed man. The unbiblical separation of the Pharisees from this man has isolated him to be with Jesus alone. That's profound. And this is the best place for any formerly or formally religious person to be. Face to face, beholding just Jesus because he is enough to save. He was living proof that Jesus came into the world for judgment to divide those of unbelief from those who believe and the, the blind man who had his physical eyes open now has the scales falling from his spiritually blind eyes and he proclaims in verse 38 what? Lord I believe. Lord, I believe. But those tender words of our Savior right before that proclamation, the man asks a question to Jesus' question, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and he is the one who is right before you talking with you. And then, Wow the whole fulfillment of the purpose of John writing, that they may see that he's the son of God and that they might believe in his name. The word's used twice here. And in believing, they might have life through that name. And then he proclaims to that man, you are the very living illustration in this moment as to why I came to earth. I didn't come to condemn it, but I came so a very clear line can be drawn in the sand between who believes and who doesn't. I just want to go through some practical applications here from all four scenes as we close this morning. And I would ask you to listen as carefully as you can because this will not turn into a hostage situation. <laughs> what do we learn from scene one as per our context? I think we all know that there's always been sincerely motivated people who gather for Christian fellowship, worship, and service who actually may not be saved. 
If these sincerely motivated ones are saved, I think we can understand that it's possible that they could have allowed their convictions to cloud their literal Bible interpretation by how they expect other people to live the way they do. And if there's no response, then he's going to enjoy the fellowship of the church. Is circumcision really necessary for salvation or not? Well, why don't we just make that a agree to disagree situation? And the Bible says in Galatians 2 that he did that because he was afraid. He was fearful of those who were all right with Jesus, but they were going to add a few matters of conviction to the table. And by the way, there was another really, really good guy who was very instrumental, probably the most instrumental person of Paul's life right after Paul's conversion that got caught up in that snare in Galatians 2, remember? The very son of comfort, Barnabas. And Peter has to step in without fear and, and call him on the carpet and do the right thing. I would say this church is, no, is, unlike, is not unlike any other church. But I trust as we continue to go along that we will remain fair with understanding truth of the word because we know it well when it comes time to standing for it or applying it we'll do so without the fear of men. All of it. Not 98% of it. All of it. And let's remember this. I wrote these notes some time ago from a favorite pastor of mine. He said, when something is truly scriptural, we need to never fear. We need to always fear violating it. But when it's not... Fill in the blanks. Then he went on to say this. The question is not, does it break with our convictions, but is it prohibitive scripturally? And then he went on to say, per your convictions, you be strict. When it comes to your convictions on somebody else's life, you be kind. So no way would we ever want to take something of that which was personally done of God himself in your heart to cause you to hold fast, but be very careful that you don't inscripturate your convictions. But hold fast to the word, all of it, without compromise. And don't cave by the fear of men. What we learned from scene three, including their verdict, those who begin well-intentioned in their convictions and continue to push their convictions on others will in time seem insincere in their motives and methods. They will begin to separate and isolate others and themselves over personal conviction and not something clearly prohibitive in Scripture. I remember being taught long ago of Jonathan Edwards. You remember him of early American church history? His grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, was a preacher and Jonathan Edwards in his early days was his assistant. Well, back then in Stoddard's church, they practiced infant baptism. And it was real. So as these children got older and it came time to participating in the Lord's Supper, there was a problem in the church. Can these children participate in the Lord's Supper? Though they've been baptized, their lives haven't been changed because they're unconverted what do we do? And so the church wrote up, and you can go back and study it in history, something called the halfway covenant. 
we'll allow them to do this, but we understand conversion's still necessary. Well, Jonathan stayed on as the assistant, but he, gained, he began to preach against the halfway covenant, <laughs> and consequently, he was fired <laughs> and uh, went on to win a lot of people to Christ in his life. But nonetheless, I think a little bit of an illustration of what we're talking about here. Whether it's music, dress, how you practice Sunday, the Lord's Day, when personal conviction becomes biblical position to the point of division causing turmoil in the church, we've got to be careful. We've also got to understand too, folks, that as I said before, I have convictions. I have very strong personal convictions for me, my family. You do too. And then there's ecclesiastical conviction. There's some things that, you know what, we're just never going to budge on. There's some things that we do by way of conviction here at Grace that are applications of Bible principle, not always Bible mandate. My goodness, we're going to hold to those. We're going to hold fast, fast to those. But I'm never going to take those convictions and indict another church that doesn't have the same I'll be strict here and kind and compassionate there. And I think we need to take the same thing ecclesiastically and apply it to our lives personally. You may have convictions about a lot of things, and you know what? In your mind, in your heart, they could be right, and they may be right. But they've been, they've, they, you've come to them, I trust, by the leading of the Spirit of God, by the, the Word of God, as to your circumstance and your life and your home personally. Hold fast to those. Don't budge. Continue to learn and grow in Christ's likeness. But as you're discipling in this church and you're living out those personal convictions, you can state them. Others can learn from them. But understand, they do not, they do not come with the authority of the spoken and written and preserved word of God. They don't. If they do for you, then you have inscripturated your personal convictions. And my friends, we don't want to add to or take away from the word of God. Our Savior says something about that at the end of the book of Revelation. So be strict with your convictions. and Be kind as you walk forward as we seek to here as a church as well. Be Bereans. Search the scriptures as to whether anything be true that you read and that you hear. And let's remember the sweet closing to this text of Jesus with this lost man. And let's learn from how, let's learn. Can we, can we do this real quick? Can we learn tactically? what Jesus does and his burden for lost people here. Jesus found him. He uses the art of interrogative. I love asking lost people questions. Compassionate, loving questions. Not questions to manipulate them into understanding Jesus, but questions just to kind of get to know him. This could be very easily said among your religious friends. How does your church teach you who Jesus, the Son of Man, is? Isn't that, an, isn't that a softball for a religious neighbor? What has your church taught you? Well, I, I don't go to church. My parents used to go to church, and I'm not really sure what, what they taught of him, but I think they taught this. Dude, that's a softball for anybody. Begin the conversation with a question. I just said, dude, I'm sorry. Sometimes when I'm passionately talking with my boys about something and I don't think they're getting it, I'll say, dude, listen to me. Anyways, you are not dudes. People of God, I beseech you. Consider the use of interrogative, I say. <laughs> and folks, this is all done after Jesus has enacted upon him an extreme act 
of kindness. Be kind to people who don't know Jesus. They're made in his image. They're created for his purpose. And Jesus longs for them to be saved. Find someone. Be kind to them. Ask God for wisdom how to be kind to them. He'll give you lots of ideas in a moment. Be kind. Start a relationship. Ask a question. Continue the relationship. And I assure you in time, you will. Because you prayed for it to happen. You will have an opportunity to share that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And you will have an opportunity to ask them to know him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the simplicity of this text. Such a wonderful text considering where we're headed in John 10 with understanding your son is the the great shepherd, the good shepherd. Uh, Lord, I pray that our eyes would have been opened and remain open to understanding this text and, and how to practically apply it for each one of us, beginning with me. Lord, I pray as a result of the hearing of your word, both in song and in preaching, that, that we will leave this place certainly more joyful than when we first came today. Bless the fellowship among your people this afternoon and this evening. Even as they fellowship some in parks, may they see, maybe find someone to be kind to, to begin a relationship for Jesus' sake. We love you, Lord, and we look forward to seeing you in the clouds. In Christ's name, amen.